You know, as you read the book of John, uh, you should always start in chapter 20, verse 30 to 31, and then go to whatever passage you're about to read. Because in chapter 20, verse 30 to 31, John lays out why the Holy Spirit inspired him to write this book in the first place. So let's start there, and then we'll come back to John 11, thinking all the time, Jesus is. Who is Jesus to you? Because ultimately, that's the question that needs to be answered. And that's a question and the answer that matters more than who Jesus is to me and who I'm going to proclaim him to be, who Jesus is to Jesus, who Jesus is in his word. Ultimately, what matters most is who is Jesus to you? I don't say that because we put meaning on Jesus as if we define him. If you read the book of John, you will see he lets no human being define him ever. He sits in his own definition and then reveals himself throughout. And we'll see that in the book of John. We'll see that today. But you act every day and every moment on who Jesus is. You made a decision to be here based on who Jesus is. You made a decision how to drive here based on who Jesus is. You made a decision of a career and to stay in your career and how you face others in relationship based on your understanding of who Jesus is. It's the most important question you could ever answer. And if you think it's important now, a thousand years from now, your answer to that question will make every difference for your eternity. We exist to display to the world who Jesus is as he displayed himself and revealed himself to be. So John chapter 20, verse 30 to 31. Look at this passage. Jesus said this in John 20, 30 to 31. I'm sorry, John said this. Uh, Jesus did many other signs. Remember, in the book of John, uh, Jesus doesn't do miracles. They're called signs. They signify something greater. They point to something greater. That's what a sign does. And there's seven of them in the book of John. Seven miracles. We're at the final miracle of Jesus in the book of John in in chapter 11. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in the book. Jesus did tons of miracles in his life. But these have been written... Uh, The Holy Spirit inspired me to choose these seven so that you may believe that Jesus is. That's where we get the title for this whole series. That Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. That in believing that you may have life in his name. We actually found a website called Jesus Is that asks this very question. It's a portal where people chime in. It's a community website around the world, and you get answers from everything from, you know, Jesus is my Lord and Savior to Jesus is the greatest concept ever created by humans, a skeptic. Jesus is liking my sock choice. It's on the website. Jesus is a dishwasher at Chili's. Uh, I'm the only one, I think, as a pastor who could say Jesus is an employee at PCC. Our groundskeeper is named Jesus. He serves us all on Sunday. Um, But who is Jesus to you? I want you to see a video from that website that might uh, bring up some thoughts for you. And I want you to write down as you reflect during this video, who is Jesus to me? And I want you to write it down in your sermon notes. And then we'll come to John chapter 11. Watch this. Jesus is faithful. Jesus is inspiration. Jesus is my purpose to be alive. Jesus is freedom. Jesus. Jesus Jesus is my second Jesus is my strength. Jesus is Jesus is is everything. Jesus is laughter. Jesus is my confidence. Jesus is a friend. Jesus is.
Jesus is peace. Jesus is Jesus an artist. Jesus is out of this world. My reality. Jesus is legit. Jesus is my restorer. Jesus is. Take 30 seconds and three words on who Jesus is to you. Go ahead, write it down. Three words. Just for you. Who is Jesus to you? We're at the final miracle of this book called John, and we're actually 10 days out from the crucifixion. Uh, If you want to see the emphasis in John's gospel, he uh, commits almost 11 chapters to the final week of Jesus' life. We're about to slow down really slowly and walk with Jesus to the cross, to his death, to his resurrection. He's two miles outside of uh, Jerusalem where he'll die. He's been hiding to regulate when he's going to die. And the question rises, who is Jesus to Mary, to Martha, and to Lazarus, his closest friends? If Jesus had a family outside of his nuclear family, it was Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And they had expected him to be something for them. Lazarus got sick, and they said, oh, let's call in a favor. And they call to Jesus, and Jesus stays put. And says, this is going to happen for the greater glory of God. He doesn't meet their expectations. And he comes on the scene, and he'll hear three times about that decision to stay put. Mary and Martha will say the same thing. And then there's professional mourners, because in the first century, uh, when someone died, they'd have professional mourners come around and weep and wail. They dealt with death, and they still do, in the east and the southern hemisphere, so much better than we do here in America, where we hide it and stay away from it. Uh, It's a culture of death that Jesus lived in. So mourners are weeping and wailing, and even the mourners are saying this question, where were you? Hey, man, we had some expectations here. We asked you to come, and you didn't come on our timeline. In essence, it's the question of Martha. It's the question of Mary. It's the question of the mourners. It's so relevant. Have you ever had that kind of emotion with God? I prayed. I took you at your word, and you didn't show up. Where were you? Now, what's amazing is Mary and Martha ask the same question. Martha comes first out to Jesus and basically says, where were you? And Jesus uh, jumps into her despair, and he comes with truth. Okay, Veronica read that. He comes with truth, and he pushes back her despair with the truth of him being fully God. I am the resurrection and the life. Then she gets uh, healed, really, from her despair. She runs back home, calls her sister Mary. Mary comes out to her, says the same thing. You can look in John 11, the same exact words that Martha says. And Jesus jumps into her despair, and instead of pushing back with truth, you know what he does? He rides in the current of her grief and almost says nothing, nothing relevant to her despair. You know what he does? He cries with her. Why does he treat one sister with I'm fully God, and one sister, I'm truly human. I am so broken up with this, I'm not going to say a word. I'm just going to grieve with you right now. What is going on here? Who is this man, God, man, God, man? Who is he? Let's look. Open your Bibles to John 11, and grab your sermon notes, and let's look at this. And let's figure out 
why Jesus would be so strong in one moment and so vulnerable in the next. How he is truly God and fully human at the same time. Who is Jesus? Relating to Martha, he comes across, he's truly God. He is truly God. We'll pick it up in verse 21, okay? Um, Lazarus has been dead four days. One other factor that's important, uh, the Jews didn't use embalming fluid in any kind. They had spices to help with the odor of death and the decay of the body, but they did not embalm whatsoever. In Jewish custom, the day you died, you had to be in the grave that night. They seal the grave. Decomposition starts immediately. And we'll see by four days without any embalming. Uh, th- you know, it, like when Veronica was reading, I was going, why aren't we on our, on our feet just going, woohoo, this is amazing. And we've heard this story so often. It's more than just bringing a dead man to life in 100 pounds of grave clothes. Uh, it's putting decomposed flesh back together. It's, it's, it's reversing rigor mortis. It's taking uh, the eyeballs and, and making them function again, the dead decomposing heart and reforming it and taking blood that has just been sitting, not pumping whatsoever, and started it pumping again and putting flesh back together. This is an amazing miracle that goes on here. But I get ahead of myself. Verse 21, Jesus shows up. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. She goes theological, right? You don't see grief in her. I'm sure it's there. But she has all the right answers. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered. I, now she goes eschatological. Her eschatology, her theology of the future, of the end times, is spot on. She goes, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus says to her, and I wonder in a very... Uh, honoring way if he didn't just chuckle under him and going, wow, your theology is so good, but let me treat you as a human right now. I'm the resurrection and the life. She will rise in the last day, but the last day will be on the last day. I've showed up. Today is the day. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. So he says something to help her with Lazarus and then to help her with herself. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. He said that for the sake of Lazarus. You will see your brother alive today. And then he comforts her and says, And you, uh, Martha, even though you believe in me, you're never going to die either. And he says this, Do you believe this? Do you believe this? I'm exactly what Lazarus needs, and I'm exactly who you need right now. And I would ask you that question. Do you believe that? I mean, not in the church way where we give a nod, oh, yeah, of course I believe that. But do you really believe that he's the resurrection and the life, that he brings life to dead things or dying things, that there's a power source available to each one of us where a miracle can happen relationally, that he brings uh, life to dead relationships. He brings life spiritually to dead people. We're all, many of us are a testimony to that where we were spiritually dead, dead to the things of God, and now we're spiritually alive, where we can worship him, where he brings life uh, in your career, where you don't see a a way that this career is going to make any significance for God, but God is the resurrection life there. Or he brings life in a relationship, or life in a character issue, where you've just given up and you've settled with the fact that's always how they're going to be. 
Do you believe in the resurrection and the life? No, no, no. There's power available where that dead aspect of their character can come alive. See, that's our hope, everybody. And everybody places their hope in something or someone. We serve a Savior that we can place our hope in. Do you believe, and you just saw the video of FPU, Financial Peace University, that God can bring life to dead financial management? Whatever we place before the Savior, he's just crazy. He has the ability to save, and he's in the business of saving. It's what guides our prayer life. That's why I ask, who is Jesus to you? Do you believe that? That he can bring hope and life to your life, to your relationship, to your future, to your character. I'm banking everything on that. Not because I'm a pastor, but because I'm a child of God. If that's not the case, let's shut the doors, let's sell the property, and let's give the tens of millions of dollars this this whole 15 acres is worth, let's give it away for humanitarian causes. Because this is just a farce. God is still in the business of bringing life to dead things. So to Martha, he comes as the resurrection and the life. It drives me uh, on Mondays and most days I have a list of people who have yet to receive new life in Christ that I'm praying for. There are people on that list I've been praying for for 30 years. And I'm trusting God in his timing. He's delaying for his greater glory. That's what the beginning of John 11 says. I don't know why my friends that I've been praying for for 30 years have yet to come to Christ, but I'm trusting God in that, in his sovereign plan. Now, he comes to Mary, and to Mary he comes across as truly human. No less God, but truly human. Um, See, the Jews had no category whatsoever that a human being could be God. None. The God of Mount Sinai who touched the mountain and smoke, the pillar of fire at night, the cloud by day, they had no concept that that God in the Messiah would be a human being. Mary had a hard time with that in the beginning of Luke as well, when she was told, you're going to birth the Messiah. She's like, no way. And while pictures tend to dissuade us from seeing Jesus as fully human, art history dissuades us from seeing Jesus as fully human. The Bible doesn't. Historically speaking, we don't know what Jesus looked like, but from art history, we know that different cultures place different aspects on Jesus that have formed our mind. And my premise is this. We don't really, really understand how human Jesus was. Uh, it was the Byzantines in the ninth century that put a beard on Jesus, when Jesus with a beard first appeared in art. Because to the Byzantines, a beard was power. Uh, It was the Victorians that gave us blonde Jesus. Because that was a Jesus they could relate to. A clean Jesus. A happy Jesus. No muscle tone whatsoever. (laughs) And uh, it was actually the uh, many artists, uh, almost in all of art history, that put a halo on Jesus to make him holy. Now listen, um, I don't mean to demean any of that. As a matter of fact, out of the more than 50 films that were made about Jesus in history, not one was ever played by an actor who was ethnically Jewish. We have no idea what Jesus looks like. Every portrayal in art seems to be inaccurate. And my point, if we would have seen Jesus as a man, I believe we'd see a normal guy carrying a lunchbox in one hand. He was a carpenter, a toolbox in the other. I think we'd shake calloused hands. 
We'd see brown, toned muscles. We'd see a man who did the normal things that everybody does. A man who sweats, smiles, frowns. A man who smelled. A man who bathed. A man who had to go to the bathroom. A man who gets dirty. I don't say this in any way to dishonor Jesus, but to point out what entire books of the Bible, like 1 John, point out. He was human, everybody. Fully human. No less God. He was fully God. But he was truly human. As a matter of fact, when you get to heaven and see Jesus, you will see the form of a human being in a resurrected body. But you will see scars. You will see nail scars, crown scars. You'll see a fully uh, new-bodied human being. I don't know why we so often take that aspect of Christ out of life. It just makes him more relatable when we consider he was fully human and truly God. Verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. Parenthetically, uh, whenever Mary's mentioned in the Bible, we'll see her next week as well in John chapter 12, uh, she's the only person who Jesus let at his feet. And whenever she's portrayed in the Gospels, Luke 10, John 11, John 12, she's always at the feet of Jesus. Uh, Parenthetically, Martha, whenever she's portrayed, she's always blaming someone else and concerned about someone else. Which one are you more like? In Luke 10, Martha's like, tell my sister to work. Here, John 11, where were you, Jesus? Mary in Luke 10, she's sitting at the feet, save for disciples, learning from the rabbi. John 11, she comes to Jesus and falls at his feet. She is buried in grief. John 12, she breaks up a dinner party and pours a jar of expensive nard to prepare him for burial, but she does it over his feet. So here she is. Lord, if you've been here, she says, same words, my brother would not have died. And you've got to ask, why didn't Jesus give her the line, resurrection lifeline? When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who'd come with her also weeping, those are the professional mourners, he was deeply moved, circle that word, we'll come back to it, in his spirit, greatly troubled, circle that word, we'll come back to it. If you think God doesn't have emotion, uh, I say this humbly, think again. Verse 34, and he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Shortest verse of the Bible, but it speaks volumes. See, to the Romans, uh, to the Greeks, their gods were, uh, the Greek word is the word we get apathetic from. They had no emotion when it came to dealing with humans. We serve a God who does. Did you know that? Not only Jesus, but the whole trinity is expressed of having emotion. They're not like us, out-of-bounds emotion. They, they uh, have their emotion in the context of holiness, but uh, God is grieved in the Bible. God is angered in the Bible. Uh, we had a word this morning from Zephaniah chapter 3. God rejoices over you with singing in the Bible. Jesus gets angry himself. We'll see that here. Praise God for that. He's weeping. So with Martha, he dives into her despair and pushes back with truth. I am the resurrection and the life. With Mary, he dives into her despair and rides the current of her grief with her, weeping with her. With Martha, he gives her the ministry of truth. That's what she needed. She was spinning out of control, and he speaks truth to her. 
and says, Martha, I know you can't put your faith in the circumstances. You have a dead brother who's decomposing. It's been four days. Put your faith in my words. And God is saying that to some of you today. Trust my word over your circumstances. Because men and women, I've said this before, the senses are so limiting when it comes to reality. What you see, what you hear, what you feel. Brian said that last week. Your feelings and emotions, they're valid to you, but they're not valid as far as portraying reality. It's your filter of reality. Jesus says you've got to put your hope in something. Hope in me. Hope in my word. With Mary, he gives her the ministry of tears, not the ministry of truth. Because, you know, when people are grieving, many times the best thing you can do is just keep quiet and just be there and grieve with them. To know that they're not alone. Back in December, uh, I can't go into details, but there was a horrific experience with someone in our body. And it was 10 o'clock at night, and I just thought, okay, God was prompting me, don't let that person be alone. And I drove to their house, and um, there was a, a terrible experience, a death of a relationship. And I just jumped in, and for three or four hours, I, just, I was just there. I had my Bible, but this wasn't the time to say, I told you this would happen. This wasn't the time to get out the theology. This was just a time to be. We watched a U2 concert together on TV. I let him guide the conversation. We prayed. But it was more just being there. And and, uh, a week later, he called me and just said, you have no idea how much you ministered to me. Thank you for being my pastor. Many times when you come and grieve and you don't know what to say, don't say anything. Just be. Just show up. The ministry of presence. That's what Jesus is doing here. The ministry of tears. Not because he had nothing to say, but Mary didn't need theology at that point. She needed him. We all need the ministry of truth and the ministry of tears at different times. And Jesus knows exactly when to display each one. He's truth personified wrapped up in tears. Isn't that incredible? He's the paradox of being fully God and truly human. It's just overwhelmingly beautiful. Beautiful. And what was his emotion here? He's deeply moved. Uh, We'll get, get back to some words. In the original language, it was the image of a war horse angered on its hind legs and snorting, deeply moved. Jesus, I'll use, uh, I'll temper my language here. He was ticked. Something is angering him. It'll be used again at the face of the grave of Lazarus. And then troubled, it means to be stirred. Uh, That word will come up again in Gethsemane. Uh, Something is agitating him. Something's shaking him. He doesn't have positive emotion. Praise God that our God is not like Spock. Or some great oracle in the sky who doesn't have emotion. Uh, back, gosh, it must have been about eight years ago, our family was vacationing up in Tahoe, and we were playing bingo at this outdoor thing. And Bella was really young then, and she was playing in, the, in a rock jetty, a uh, little creek with some kids, and she comes over in the middle of the bingo game. She's crying, saying, Daddy, Daddy. And all I heard was uh, older boys throwing rocks at me. So as her dad... That was not the time for me to go, oh, Bella, you must forgive them. (laughs) Uh, I ran with her to the rock jetty where the guys were. I picked up rocks and just started pelting the guy. No, I didn't do it. (laughs) I wanted to. But that's my anger issue, and that's a whole different story. What I did do was funnel my anger, uh, by God's grace, in a 
proper way to advocate on behalf of my daughter. And to stop those boys and say, who's throwing rocks at my daughter? Suddenly now they don't have anyone smaller to pick on. Uh, Is that what you should be doing? No, sir. Do you have anything to say to my daughter? We're so sorry. Will it happen again? No. Do you know what it meant for Bella to have a dad angered by the fact that she was hurting? Do you know what it means to you and to me as children of God to know that God is angry over the sin that comes on us? over the grief that comes on us. Who's he angry at? In this story, he's not angry at Lazarus. He's not angry at Mary. He's not angry at Martha. Uh, He's angry at sin and death and the full experience of what sin has done to his creation. And that leads us to the last point, page three. Relating to Lazarus, Jesus is eternal life. Verse 38, everybody. Verse 38. Then Jesus, here's the word again, warhorse, snorting, uh, moved, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid against it. Uh, here he is, and if you can see the scene, there's professional mourners and wailers. Uh, they must have been really loved in the community of Bethany because there's a lot of people around there. And there's Jesus in front of the cave, in front of the tomb. He's angry. He's got tear stains on his dirty face. And um, what's he angry at? Um, He's seen full frontal in 3D the result of our rebellion. This is what sin does. Ultimately, it causes death. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. We've all sinned. Romans 6, 23. The consequence of that is death. Here's the creator who was at creation, who created everything and didn't put decay or death or sin in the equation. But our rebellion put that into the story of creation. And here's Jesus going, hearing the morning, hearing the wind. He knows he's going to raise him from the dead. But because he's fully human, he's angered and grieving over this. Praise God that he's fully human. And so he's, he's saying, oh. And if that was me, I would have used it as a teaching moment. And this is why it's good I'm not your savior. I would have turned and said, are you happy now? Do you see what your sin does? You think it's just a little glance when no one's looking or a little taking of money when no one's looking? Do you see how insidious your sin nature is and what it's done to all creation? Do you see the grief in these two sisters? This is why I said... Don't eat the fruit. But I'm not their savior. He channels his anger the right way towards our greatest enemy, death. What this means, men and women, is that death was never part of God's original design. Uh, Nor was decay, nor was divorce, nor was uh, disease. And I don't say it to shame anybody because we all have a portion of that in our lives. It's why we exist as a church, to restore what humans have wreaked havoc on. What's happening with Lazarus is really the mission of this church, to bring to life what has gone dead. It's really our mission. So here he is, and he's saying, okay, I'm going to remedy this. And you might think, well, if he didn't want evil, why didn't he just eradicate evil in the first place? Stick with me for five minutes, okay? We're going to pray in five minutes. Because the problem of evil is not out there. 
It's not just with ISIS. The root of evil is in each one of our hearts. Selfishness, pride, corruption, arrogance, lust. It lives inside of us. And if Jesus would come with a sword against evil, none of us would be alive to testify about it. We'd be dead. That's why he didn't come with a sword. He came with nails to remedy the solution. Verse 39, take away the stone. One last time, Martha resists. Lord, by this time, there will be an odor. He's been there for four days. Now it's no longer time for truth. It's no longer time for tears. It's time for power. Verse 43, he calls out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man comes out, his hands and feet wrapped in strips of linen, a cloth around his face. And he said to him, take up the grave clothes and let him go. Now, later on in chapter 11, you read that the religious leaders were there, and this was the inciting incident that made them say, enough. It was a tipping point in Jesus' public ministry. Enough. The man must die. And ten days later, sure enough, Jesus is at a cross. I think Jesus knew all that, which means that the only way Jesus knew to get Lazarus out of the tomb was to open up his own tomb and soon enter in. The only way to stop this funeral was to start his own funeral. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me, for you? This is why instead of smiling in front of the tomb, you'd think if he was just God, he'd come going, oh, oh, poor people. I'm here to save the day. It's a great day. You're about to see the greatest miracle ever. Instead of smiling, he's weeping. He's angry because he knew what it would cost him to take Lazarus from death. Jesus asked them one last thing, take the stone away. And what you'll see in this miracle is a great model for ministry. Jesus asks and invites the humans to do what they can do, and he does what he can do. Right? We can't raise people from the dead, but what we can do is roll stones away. We can't bring people entombed in 85 pounds or 100 pounds of linens from the grave, but we can unwrap them. Ministry is partnering with God and us doing our part and trusting God to do his part. It's why we exist as a church. It's why you believe who Jesus is and what will happen in the coming days. So as we close, I just want to ask, how does that inform your prayers? Jesus having a ministry of truth. Who needs truth today? That he's the resurrection and the life. You're wallowing in circumstances. And you need to hope in the character of God. That God can help create life where you just see death. Some of you need the ministry of tears. You just need God to be your strong tower, your shelter. And frankly, you just need someone to cry with you. To know that you're not going through this alone. You have all the answers. You know all the answers. You're praying the prayers. You just want to know I'm not alone. The ministry of truth, the ministry of tears. Jesus comes, fully God, truly human, bringing both. Let's pray. Jesus, I know that you never give up on us, and I know that your timing is perfect because you operate on a whole different timeline than we do. 
many of us are here and there's, we can all bring up circumstances in our life where we just tap our foot or tap our watch and say, anytime now, we're waiting, we're trusting. I pray you would manifest yourself as you really are. For my sisters and brothers who need truth, that you would speak the truth and let the word of God do the work of God in our lives about your character, about that circumstance. For my brothers and sisters who need tears, Lord, that we would be the church, the true body of Christ, and we would be your hands and feet and shoulders and your eyes to see what no one else sees and cry with people. May you be glorified in our week, Lord, as we go and be your ambassadors and venture out. I love the hearts of the people in this room to venture out, to do what we can do, but partner with you so you can do the supernatural. Go with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Peninsula Covenant Church Podcast. We're located at 3560 Farm Hill Boulevard in Redwood City, California. You can reach us online at www.peninsulacovenant.com.